Welcome to the third and concluding session of the John Wilmerding Symposium on American Art. My name is Charles Brock, Associate Curator of American and British Paintings at the National Gallery, and I'll be your moderator. Our session this afternoon is entitled The Nation's Capital in the Time of Alma Thomas. It features the insights of three scholars and an artist, each with their own unique perspective on Thomas's life in Washington. Dr. Melanie Harvey, Assistant Professor and Coordinator of Art History at Howard University. Dr. Thaisa uh, Way, Program Director of Garden and Landscape Studies at Dumbarton Oaks. The acclaimed glass artist and theatrical designer, Margie Jervis. And Dr. Maria McQuirter, author of the African-American Heritage Trail Guide for Washington, D.C. and creator and curator of the website dc1968project.com. The talks will consider, in sequence, Alma Thomas's relationship to Washington from the perspective of a church, a garden, a photographer, and a single year. Drawing on her illuminating catalog essay, For Everything is Beautiful, Dr. Harvey will examine how St. John's Episcopal Church located adjacent to the Thomas family house at 1530 15th Street Northwest served, Thomas, served Alma Thomas, quote, as a point of orientation, signaling her proximity to home, community, and creative expression. Dr. Way will discuss Thomas's fascination with the gardens at Dumbarton Oaks in Georgetown and how that experience resonated with the cultivation and curation of Thomas's own garden on 15th Street as well as her creative practice as a visual artist. Margie Jervis will recount the friendship between Thomas and her mother, the photographer, writer, and social activist Ida Jervis, as seen in several notable photographs by Ida from the late 60s and early 70s. Finally, Maria McWhorter will situate Alma Thomas in the year 1968 and explore how Thomas's insistence on beauty gives us new ways to think about Washington. To quote Dr. McWhorter, DC 1968 is a digital storytelling project about Washington during the entire year of 1968. The project moves beyond the hyper-focus on the uprising after the assassination of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and amplifies the art, activism, architecture, and everyday life that made 1968 such an extraordinary year. We encourage everyone to enter their questions and comments for the speakers in the chat. Following the talks, there will be a discussion panel where we'll respond to as many of them as time allows. The program is made possible by a grant from the Alice L. Walton Foundation. And now, without further ado, let me welcome our first speaker, Dr. Melanie Harvey from Howard University. Melanie? So first, I wanna thank the National Gallery of Art and everyone responsible for planning and executing this program. And also thank you to Seth and Jonathan for helping me shape my thoughts um, that were included in the exhibition catalog. During the 1922-1923 academic school year at Howard University, which would have been Alma Thomas's second year of study at Howard, Elaine Locke delivered an address entitled The Ethics of Culture to the Freshman Lecture Course, which was published for the entire student body in the Howard University record. In this lecture, Locke asserts, quote, 
in the earlier stages of the development of culture, there is a pardonable concentration upon self-cultivation. Spiritual capital must be accumulated. Moreover, culture, even when it is rich and mature, gives only by sharing and moves more by magnetic attraction than by transfer of material or energy, end quote. Locke's analysis provides insight into Alma Thomas's cultural development across the aesthetic and the spiritual. One can envision the architectural character of Washington, D.C., and specifically her 15th Street neighborhood that it had on had an, a magnetic effect on influencing Thomas's early interest in being a great architect. Located one block from her home, St. Luke's Episcopal Church stands as a monumental structure that would have served a dual purpose in the life of Alma Thomas as a magnetic cultural structure and a spiritual center. As documented in the Historic American Building Survey, St. Luke's design was driven by the Reverend Alexander Crummel's architectural engagement with the Anglican ecclesiological movement which encouraged the appropriateness of the Gothic Revival parish style during the late 19th century. As the founding rector of St. Luke's, the Reverend Crummel envisioned St. Luke's as a capacious structure capable of holding, in his words, a thousand or more persons during the Reconstruction and post-Reconstruction era. Imposing, an imposing edifice that would welcome and mobilize African-Americans migrating to a city that activist and lawyer Mary Ann Shod Carey described as the, quote, Mecca of the colored pilgrim, end quote. Designed by African-American architect Calvin Thomas Stowe Brent as a late 19th century cathedral to African-American culture and intellectual traditions, this English Gothic revival structure was an architectural beacon in Thomas's neighborhood. The variety of pattern across its rough Ashler Chesapeake bluestone facade and stained glass window program emphasized the building's impressive mass and scale, which sets it apart from the smaller two-story row houses in the neighborhood. In Thomas's daily world, with her mind attuned to architecture, the building would serve as evidence of a legacy that African-Americans forged in Washington, D.C. For Alma Thomas, St. Luke's Church represented a creative legacy cultivated by African-Americans that Thomas herself would augment as an art educator and renowned painter. Additionally, St. Luke's was a site where Alma Thomas would navigate and define for herself social expectations for individual religious life. This presentation will begin by discussing the social significance of St. Luke's church and conclude by examining how Thomas shaped her engagement with this religious congregation, working to transform St. Luke's into a site for social service and outreach. Thomas's family developed and performed their religio-racial identity through participation in the social and spiritual life of St. Luke's Church. Scholar of American religion, Judith Weisenfeld, defines religio-racial identity as, quote, individual and collective identity as constituted in the conjunction of race and religion, end quote. 
Analysis of the Thomas family's religious affiliation reveals the socio-political orientation within their household and provides insight into the class dynamics of the neighborhood that would impact Thomas as an artist educator. Prior to their relocation to Washington, the Thomases had been members of St. John's African Methodist Episcopal Church in Columbus, Georgia, an African-American middle-class congregation. During this era, the African, the African Methodist Episcopal denomination in the Jim Crow South was a safe haven and a center for developing early civil rights strategies. The family sought to maintain a similar socioeconomic position by joining St. Luke's, privileging proximity to religious site and the historic prestige of this congregation over denominational affiliation. As the Thomases settled into the social fabric of their religious community, Alma Thomas developed a childhood friendship with Nellie Brown, the daughter of the St. Luke's rector. The two women shared an enduring bond as they both pursued careers in education. A photograph of Nellie Brown remained in Thomas's possession until her death as evidence of the social connection she forged through parish membership. Considering these types of relationships allows us to understand a facet of Thomas's spirituality expressed through friendship and participation in St. Luke's religious community. Thomas sustained the family tradition of affiliation with St. Luke's, but defined it on her own terms. Despite minimal insight into the artist's daily practice of spiritual beliefs, substantial evidence in the Alma Thomas papers reveals how the artist actively shaped her interaction with her home church. For instance, there is no account of her consistent attendance at services, but by the late 1960s, she noted sporadic meetings with the Rector Aid Society of St. Luke's. Furthermore, she advanced her family's religio-racial legacy by contributing her skills in art education to the social service initiatives, which were popular among Protestant urban congregations at the time. Thomas is most frequently documented at St. Luke's using her proficiencies in art and aesthetic education to conduct the work of social uplift during the 1950s and 60s. As scholar and activist Bell Hooks explains, women like Thomas undergirded African-American religious spaces by contributing their range of abilities um, to the social life of the church. Thus, Thomas's art education at St. Luke should be understood in the context of Black women's organized social activism. The historian Mary Elizabeth B. Murphy characterizes this legacy with, this, with these words, quote, Black women in churches and social and political organizations work to shatter negative stereotypes by offering wholesome recreational opportunities for women in the city emphasizing the politics of respectability. Exemplifying this practice, Thomas founded the Sunday Afternoon Beauty Club in October of 1962, which met in the newly renovated St. Luke's Parish Hall. There she gathered neighborhood children from the 1500 block of Church Street for weekly cultural enrichment meetings, which met from, five, from four to five o'clock each Sunday evening. 
The Beauty Club exposed neighborhood children to cultural experiences, including travel logs, as well as musical and visual art education. For example, Thomas organized a trip to the National Gallery of Art in January of 1963 for the Sunday Afternoon Beauty Club to experience Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa when it was on view. This visit to see the Mona Lisa was the culmination of month-long programming, which included a screening of a film about the history and art collection of the Louvre. The Sunday Afternoon Beauty Club also brought beauty to their environment and activities such as Christmas caroling. After teaching members about the history of Christmas carols, Thomas led the children through the 15th Street neighborhood to sing to the community. Thomas also provided instruction in painting and sculpture for St. Luke's annual vacation Bible school, contributing to an arm of organizational activity in the church spearheaded by Black women. Responding to her local neighborhood, which shifted dramatically in socioeconomic makeup during the mid-20th century, Thomas's practice dialogically influenced her community. Her, her art-related activities at the historic church further positioned St. Luke's as a site accessible to all across, across socioeconomic classes. Thomas's career as an art educator and her post-retirement era art instruction at St. Luke's provides the opportunity to understand her contribution to the educational strategy of fugitive pedagogy practiced by Black educators. Scholar Jarvis Givens defines fugitive pedagogy as, quote, subversive educational acts by Black Americans during the Civil War period through Jim Crow, end quote. Building on Zora Neale Hurston's concept of featherbed resistance, Givens details fugitive pedagogy as the construction of, quote, an interior world within the African-American veiled existence in the shadow of the anti-Black color line, even as African-Americans engage in various practices of acquiescing to the mainstream social order, end quote. Alma Thomas's insistence on the pursuit of beauty through creation and recognition marks a significant aspect of this interior world of African-Americans that sustain their humanity. The parish's significance to and for Alma Thomas extends beyond its role as a spiritual home and social center. Visual and textual repetition throughout the Alma Thomas papers transforms St. Luke's into a sign that conveys a range of meanings in the artist's life. For example, the historic edifice is partially visible in an undated, unattributed photograph. Preparing to enter a parked car on the side of St. Luke's, artist educator James V. Herring and abstract artist Sam Gilliam look toward the camera. Thomas's possession of this image's image suggests her recognition of the creative legacy she cultivated alongside her mentor Herring and her contemporary Gilliam. This photograph facilitates reflection on a tradition of African-American aesthetic practice from the architect Brent's 1870 structure to the pioneering 1920s art leadership of Herring to the moment of the late 1960s abstraction practiced by both Gilliam and Thomas. In Thomas's archive, St. Luke's appears as a familial base, 
a collaborative site, and an ever-present visual symbol that had a magnetic effect in her life across the aesthetic and the spiritual. And for more than 50 years, St. Luke's Episcopal Church served as a point of orientation for Alma Thomas, signaling her proximity to home, community, and compelling her to engage and extend an African-American creative tradition. It is now my pleasure to pass the virtual mic to my colleague, Thaisa Way. Thank you. And I, I'm really pleased um, to follow Melanie because I'm going to talk about Dumbarton Oaks and one of those places that Alma Thomas visited. So first, thank you uh, for sharing this remarkable exhibit uh, and the scholarship with all of us. I'm honored to be included in this discussion. We learn from the outstanding catalog, Everything is Beautiful, that Thomas, quote, reveled in living and living things, relishing visits of friends to her garden, and as Gray Gundaker notes, was considered a connoisseur of the gardens of Washington, D.C., including the National Arboretum, the U.S. Botanic Garden, city parks, and Dumbarton Oaks. These are, for the most part, landscapes in the public realm. However, Dumbarton Oaks is different, remaining a private landscape in Georgetown, and in Thomas's time, only open to the public a few days a week. What would Thomas have found at Dumbarton Oaks, and why may she have visited? For those who don't know Dumbarton Oaks, please come visit. The landscape architect Beatrix Farron was invited by Mildred and former ambassador Robert Woods Bliss to their new home in 1921 called the Oaks in Georgetown and asked to design the landscape, a project to which she was deeply engaged from 1921 to 1947. So some of the same years uh, that Alma was attending school and teaching and then launching her painting career. Farron found at the Oaks, a landscape of ridges and valleys, traces of former gardens, and a fine collection of trees and boxwood, with a house built in 1801 at the top of the ridge. This landscape had originally been an important part of a larger network of paths for indigenous communities, and then cultivated and shaped by European families with their enslaved labor. And then in the last 50 years under the care of two families, the Lithicums and Blunts, who had extended the formal gardens and attempted to cultivate the land for production. Farron's design, which you see a painting here from 1932, emerged from a deep collaboration with Mildred Billis, spanning almost three decades as they reimagined the landscape as a series of garden rooms descending to a stream and woodland valley. In 1940, the private residence with 16 acres of gardens was transformed into a, quote, home of the humanities. The Dumbarton Oaks Research Library and Collection to be overseen by the trustees of Harvard University, with 27 acres of the woodland landscape given to the National Capital Parks and Planning Commission, today known as Dumbarton Oaks Park. It is at this time that the formal garden first opened to the public on selected days alongside broader access to the public park that you see in the bottom right. In part, this is a story of where the art of two very differently positioned women, only 10 years difference in age, would intersect. 
though they would not likely have met or know much about one another. What they shared was a deep and abiding respect for the garden as a work of art, a place where one found beauty in scenery and in the senses, in the use of color, movement, and the craft of gardening. Thomas wrote, quote, the degree of beauty in a picture depends upon the feeling for the beauty in the artist and upon his power to express it. I suspect Thomas found that beauty in Farron's garden at Dunbar Noakes. And in listening to Thelma Golden just yesterday speak of Thomas's belief in the power of beauty in the face of life, I think we can claim that this garden is one such place of powerful beauty. I also think Farron would have found resonance with Thomas's claim that the quote, the important thing is for us to create, to give form to what we have inside us. We can't accept any barriers, any limitations of any kind on what we create or how we do it. However, in thinking about Thomas visiting Farron's Dumbarton Oaks, questions arise well beyond the place itself. Thomas, as a Black woman and artist, would likely have stood out from many of the garden's visitors, who were by the 1940s and 50s likely primarily white local residents, garden club members, and groups of school children come to learn about plants from Anne Sweeney, who partnered with Farrand and Mildred Bliss to create educational programs in the gardens, an aspect that likely resonated with Thomas given her long tenure at Shaw Junior High School. To begin, it's important to explore the context of Dumbarton Oaks in Georgetown, a neighborhood whose history includes major trading and selling of enslaved individuals and families in the 18th and the first half of the 19th century, as well as a significant community of free Black individuals and, and families. The 1930 census suggests the town remained around 30% Black, including the owners of businesses and leaders of civic groups, including the Rock Creek Citizens Association. However, that would begin to change in the 1940s as the area was gentrified and became wealthier and whiter. By 1960, the Black community appears to be less than 9% of the population in Georgetown. As others have amply argued elsewhere, the Alley Dwelling Act of 1934 and the Georgetown Act of 1950 that sought to preserve the historic architecture displaced many of the residents, including the Black community, both as homeowners and renters. Dunbar and Oaks itself lay adjacent to Montrose Park, and you can see it there with the big green arrow. Um, and its playground that was designated whites only until 1954, with Rose Park Playground just blocks away, serving primarily as an integrated park, although officially designated as colored only. By the 1960s, Georgetown was increasingly focused on tourism, promoting a white colonial past that further marginalized the legacy of Black communities. Additionally, Dunbar and Oaks had its own legacy, including a long history during which enslaved gardeners and laborers had shaped the land, planted trees, and cultivated the gardens. It is the former home of the Beverly family, significant slave traders, and John C. Calhoun, vice president and leading advocate for slavery. A legacy that was in fact featured in this 1950s piece published in the state magazine, a federal publication. Dumbarton Oaks thus was opening to the public beginning in 1939 at a particular moment in its history. Initially just for fundraising activities for the home for the incurables, 
the Washington Self-Help Exchange, and the Georgetown Welfare Association. It would not be open to a more general public until the early 1940s, at which point Anne Sweeney was offering tours for the general public. She had noted in 1948, school groups uh, were coming to visit with regular frequency, including groups of, quote, colored high school students. And I can't help but imagine that one of those trips might have been led by Alma Thomas as she was actively teaching then, and perhaps bringing her art league group from Shaw Jr. or her Sunday afternoon beauty club to explore Farron's work of art. By the 1950s, Dumbarton Oaks was visited by over 10,000 guests each year, and in the spring, mostly in the spring and fall. However, we honestly know very little about who they were but clearly Alma Thomas was one such visitor. The gardens in the Dunbar and Oaks Museum were thus opening to the public at the very same time as the public realm was increasingly segregated in Georgetown. So must, one must wonder what the experience of Thomas was when she visited the gardens and park beyond. Inspired by Thomas's paintings and her gardens, I suggest there is a beauty that Thomas may have appreciated in Farron's garden art and thus made it worth the trip into Georgetown. The gardens are a rich exploration of color and form emerging from a crafting of the composition of the land and its materials, the plants, soil, and water. As with Thomas's paintings, the gardens are most fully experienced through a dynamic play of movement and stillness, an engagement of the body and the mind. Farron's gardens are a work of art grounded in a humanist approach to the design of land and place as cultivation and curation, a language that might well have spoken to Thomas's vision of her own practice as an artist who painted and gardened. As an artist, Farron was not interested in a garden comprised of mere scenes, but rather she choreographed a garden through which one moved in space and time. That was the beauty of a garden. One moves, stops, engages, moves, through thus designed, was a choreography of the body through the garden. This movement is most clearly articulated in Farron's configuration of the slope land, for the house, as I mentioned, stood on a ridge with a 50-foot drop to a cow pond, now Lover's Lane pool, and another 40-foot drop to the stream at the bottom of the valley and, the, uh, and Rock Creek. As you can see here, the drawing on the left is a topographic map showing that drop and how she builds the terraces in. Farron carved terraces out of the slope landscape to form garden rooms, each held together as a whole by stairs, paths, and view lines. These stairs, paths, vistas, each kept one moving through the garden, catching a glimpse here, a stunning view there, each changing over time. Melisande's Allée on the right that blooms forth early in the spring, creating a meadow through which one meanders a narrow path, or boxwood walk on the left that moves down the terraces to a fountain with this lively water at the end. As with Thomas's painting in her own garden, color is a powerful material and media for Farrand. Color drew one's eye from one garden to the next, often in abstract forms as seen from a distance. She used color in masses and as a bold stroke, as in the Forsythia Dell, reminded me of Ross Day's Forsythia Glow. 
and as a spectrum as seen here in the herbaceous border on the right. Farron would have found inspiration in Thomas's explanation of her art that, quote, through color I have sought to concentrate on beauty and happiness rather than on man's inhumanity to man, the power of beauty in the face of life. Farron also drew color from color theory, as did Thomas, to compose the garden in ways that connected the garden room to the world, the visitor to the ground. In this photograph by Sahar Costin Hardy, we see the rose garden designed to echo the palette of the sunrise, the magic of the light coming through the trees, through the garden, a color composition that Farron redrew and refined over more than a decade. Farron also understood the power of green in the garden, both the evergreens that establish the structure for the work and the greens of trees as solid lines as well as accents. One can see the abstractions of nature that so inspired both Farron and Thomas. Nature as art, the garden as curated art. This attention to nature as art is also evident in Farron's details, another piece that I think uh, Thomas would have appreciated. In Farron's design for the stream bed in Dunbar Oaks Park with its beautiful stonework, as well as the finials and the sculptures in the more formal garden that also sometimes had just a wee bit of whimsy. Yes, those are little turtles carrying uh, that rather large uh, bowl of fruit. Cultivation and curation are at the heart of Farron's garden, much as I see in what I know of Thomas, her gardens and her paintings. Farron was an artist, one who designed gardens as a work of art. And I can't help but think as Thomas might've visited and sat under this same magnolia, it's magnolia, a purple eye, a, a particularly rare and beautiful magnolia, or walked on any one of the paths, she would have found an affinity for the garden as a work of art and the artist as a gardener. And for that, Thomas may well have come into Georgetown, even as it increasingly distanced itself from the communities in which she lived and practiced as an artist. Again, to refer to Ross, garden, Ross Gay's work, all to put the garden in our eyes. Thank you. I will now turn the lovely screen over to Margie Jervis. It is an incredible honor for um, being here to participate in this wonderful event. So I'm here to represent my mother, Ida Jervis, an artist, performer, photographer, and writer who documented Alma Thomas and was her colleague and her friend. Mom has quite a legacy from her 97 years on earth. Her background is Polish Jewish, and I'm grateful my grandparents with their young children had the courage to immigrate in the 1920s. They settled in Knoxville, Tennessee. Before she passed away in 2014, mom said, Margie, of my three kids, you are the artist. You are the one who's going to know what to do with my work. So I will do my best. I had the pleasure of meeting the curators, Seth Feeman and Jonathan Waltz of Alma Thomas, Everything is Beautiful, well before the pandemic. They invited me for a rendezvous at a coffee shop to discuss photographs of Alma Thomas in the archives of American art by my mother, Ida Jervis. From the 1960s to the 1980s, Ida was a full-fledged member of the press with a police-issued press pass allowing her entree behind police lines at demonstrations in DC and invitations to the White House and events around the city 
This is Joe and Olga Hirschhorn at the opening of the Hirschhorn Museum. She was also a feature writer and photographer for the Jewish Week of Washington, focusing on the political activism and arts and culture of the Jewish community. She donated her body of work, documenting DC area artists in their studios, including Alma Thomas, to the Smithsonian Archives of American Art. After our curators combed the archives, Jonathan Walls called me and asked if I had any other material about Alma Thomas that was not in the archive. I said I would check and made up a time for coffee. Fortunately, my mother was very organized and her boxes of materials that I have are well labeled. It wasn't long before I had a reusable shopping bag full of um, Alma Thomas materials, color slides, a handheld slide viewer, and a few files put together for our meeting. As we sat down at the coffee shop, our esteemed curators immediately go into Sherlock Holmes mode, pouring over every bit of the contents of that shopping bag. Jonathan said, it opened a magic window for us. Here is Ida Jervis and here is Alma Thomas in a photograph made by Ida in 1968. This particular one of Alma working in her studio has been a cornerstone of many articles, catalogs and exhibits of Alma's work. But that's not where the story of Ida's connection to Alma Thomas starts. My parents married in the 1940s and settled in Washington, DC. Ida loved art and world culture. She was excited to be here among all the museums and embassies. In the late 1940s, Washington DC was a conservative town. She told me that women wore gloves and hats while going shopping at the big downtown department stores. Socially and culturally, it was quite segregated. In the 1940s, there were not many commercial art galleries and tastes in art were conservative. There was room to begin new things. Started in 1947, the Washington Workshop Center for the Arts became a hub of activity Many artists who taught there were also connected to the Corcoran Gallery and School and American University. Mom went there for figure drawing sessions and studied painting and printmaking with Jack Perlmutter and Jacob Kanan. At the workshop, Mom also met Leon Berkowitz, Morris Lewis, and Jean Davis, who would be known as color school painters. Many artists from the Washington workshop, predominantly white male painters, were given the opportunity to exhibit at the Barnett Ar Aden Gallery, since the gallery was a haven for adventurous modern art. Ida once mentioned to me after art openings, she and my father, Sidney, would go out with groups of artists to a Chinese restaurant because Chinese restaurants were the only places that would serve a mixed race group. Restaurants in DC were not desegregated by law until 1953. Ida was multi-talented. She enjoyed painting, but professionally, she was a performer and a storyteller. In the 1940s, she started her own performing puppet company, designed and made all her own puppets, wrote the scripts, and performed the shows. Even though mom was aware of Alma Thomas through art circles, they didn't really become friends until a meeting of the National Capital Puppetry Guild, which must have been sometime just around 1951, because it took place at my parents' then new home in Arlington. And this is mom 
with her clown mascot. She's in her mid-30s here. Mom was 25 years younger than Alma. Alma brought with her this marionette clown, the clown that has gained a next life in ex ex exhibits about Alma Thomas and is featured in Everything is Beautiful. Alma was invited to join the guild, but as my mother's notes say, she declined. She was a full-time teacher at Shaw Junior High and then any extra hours she might have were devoted to painting. I would enjoy this group, said Alma, but I just can't let anything interfere with painting. This meeting in the 50s was the beginning of a friendship that would last until Alma's passing in 1978. For years, there were colleagues, encouraging of each other with shared attitudes about art and life. Alma was about the same age as my grandmother. Alma was a wise woman for my mom. After I was born in 1956, mom slowed down the puppet show touring. Art was changing. The world was changing. As the 1960s came, there were many important stories to tell. Real world stories about people she could show through the lens of her camera. Like Alma, mom was anti-war and pro-civil rights and believed in the arts. She believed the arts were a powerful tool to fight prejudice and by participating together, sharing cultures, people would learn about and value each other. The world would be a better and more peaceful place. She had always been interested in photojournalism. I asked her once how she made this transition in her work. She said photojournalism then was a man's game, but Alma Thomas encouraged me. She supported me in everything I did. I had to learn to use a professional camera and took classes in how to process and print her own film. We made a dark room out of the laundry room. She honed her skills, helping to launch the Hadassah Art Collectors Show, an annual, annual fundraising event from 1966 to 1974. She wrote publicity and photographed artists. She used her footprint in the art community to help coordinate 120 artists from all over the DC area. The organization took a small commission of art sales. The artists got the rest and a lot of publicity. A diverse array of artists in many media were shown. Among them, Jacob Kanan and Jack Perlmutter, Leon Berkowitz, Gene Davis, African-American artist Lois Malou Jones, Lloyd McNeil, Sam Gilliam, Alma Thomas, and Delilah Pierce. Women were well represented. It was quite a swell affair. The very fashionable and successful. Ida was hired as a feature writer for the Jewish Week of Washington and the new but short-lived art scene magazine. Also in the 1960s, Alma Thomas retired from teaching and could devote herself full-time to painting. As we all now know, amazing things were happening in her studio. Her work was selling well, and in 1968, Alma was preparing for her first solo show at Franz Bader Gallery, and that was important. I remember my mother's excitement over this step in Alma's career. I would have been about 12 in 1968. Even I understood if you were represented by Bader, that was the gateway to New York City. Mom certainly knew this was the time to do everything possible to help with the trajectory of Alma's success. 
She began interviewing Alma and taking trips to her studio to photograph her at work on her paintings. I want to share with you images from the photo sessions and the trail that led to choosing the ultimate images that become the story of Alma Thomas. Let's see how Alma and Ida worked together to create these photographs. These are some of the first images from going to Alma's home studio. Seeing these photos, you would think this is an intriguing atelier, maybe even in Paris with loads of natural light, not the kitchen table that's been most often the assumption made by descriptions of Alma's working environment. After this first day of photos, I remember mom coming home very excited about what Alma was going to, going to, um, going to be doing. And she says she's making all this new work, big paintings, really big, and it's all gorgeous. I'm going back and I have to bring lights. Mom and Alma wanted to capture the thought and care that went into developing these spontaneous looking artworks by showing Alma's process, the collages that were the many, many sketches for working out the big paintings. And how to show Alma, glasses, no glasses, different angles. Mom got on the ladder Alma used to reach up high to paint her large canvases. That and some fill light that mom had brought created more attractive angles for Alma's face and eliminated harsh shadows so we can see her expressions. They tried creative angles. Maybe it would be used like this, I don't know. But this is the image where it all falls together. We see a whole story, the tools, the environment, and best of all, Alma, beautiful, serene, and strong, focused, graceful, and totally in command. This is the whole frame of that picture, which is my favorite, showing the can of miracle Grow and all the plants and everything. It says so much. At the end of the day, mom asked Alma to sit for a more formal portrait. Alma changed her attire and fixed her hair. They tried several locations, and then again, it all fell into place for this portrait, which is written about extensively by Amy M. Mooney in the catalog for Everything is Beautiful. My mother would be thrilled. And although the next sequence of slides uh, were shot in very low light and handheld, and they've been damaged over time, I want to show them anyway for their historic value, and they are in color. We are going to that first Franz Bader exhibit. Here we go in with such a happy crowd. That's Alma in the center within the pink dress with her back to us. Here she is with Franz Bader. And I was there too. I went to a lot of art openings, often the only kid in the room. And here is me and Alma. Ida went back to Alma's house for photographs in 1971 and more interviews for an article she would write for Art Scene Magazine in 1971. She wanted to capture the window, the source of so many of Alma's inspirations with all those vertical lines of drapes and shutters and the leaf patterns, we can clearly see the blueprint for many of Alma's paintings. And across the room, the corner with the light pat projecting patterns on the wall, revealing to us a vision of the textures and light play. This is an excerpt from the article that mother wrote, um, The Magic Windows of Alma Thomas in 1971. In her living room filled with books, 
and flooded with large paintings, a bay window opens to the street. A holly tree grows across the window and in and through its branches, she sees compositions for paintings. The wind, as it moves through the tree, aids in the search for design and the leaves form and reform new masses of shapes. The light and dark greens shimmer within the window's frame, which acts as a border for these compositions. As the leaves rustle in the sun against panes of glass, their highlights and shadows are thrown upon the walls of the room in vertical modeled stripes, suggesting further compositions. The life of the street beyond filters through the spaces between the leaves of the holly tree and passing trucks and taxis add their flashes of bright reds and yellows. This overabundance of life and light gives zest to her work. After the show at the Whitney in New York, Alma was honored with a retrospective at the Corcoran Gallery of Art. Mom went to document it. Here is Alma at the Corcoran. She is around 80 years old, proud yet tired, but look how she brightens up when the group of school children come into the room. Ida described Alma as forward-looking. She looked to the future. Alma knew the future was in those beautiful children's faces. I will close with some excerpts from Ida's correspondence with Sachi Yanari, curator of an Alma Thomas exhibit in 1998 at the Fort Wayne Museum in Indiana. Ida writes, the art scene story Magic Windows with photographs of Alma at home was easier to write than any I wrote on working artists in the DC area. It simply flowed out of my hands onto the pages just because I loved her so. She was always supportive of any of my endeavors. And in another letter, Alma was like a mother to me, giving encouragement and expressing appreciation of my work. I feel that those attributes, along with her sincere interest and joy in those around her and her pride in their accomplishments, made her a success in life. Mom would be so happy to know a whole new generation of people are learning about and loving Alma and her paintings. Thank you. And now it's my honor to introduce Maria McWhorter. Thank you, Margie. Good afternoon to those of you in the same time zone and good evening and good morning to those of you listening and watching in other time zones. My sharing today is in honor of Melvin Deal, an artist, a dancer, a drummer, a teacher at Ellington, a DC public school who recently passed away. He, like Alma Thomas, loved us deeply through his art, his generosity, and his expectations of excellence. The title of this panel is The Nation's Capital in the Time of Alma Thomas, as a Washingtonian of the 70s and 80s, I have remixed, remixed the title to DC in the time of Alma Thomas. And I will focus in my 10 minutes on 1968 as Alma Thomas's time and Alma Thomas as an embodiment of 1968. If you believe white owned and white centered publications like the Washington Post and the Washingtonian Magazine, 1968 and Alma Thomas are incompatible. The Washington Post attempts to make Alma Thomas and 1968 seem incompatible because they have consistently weaponized black and white photography 
in order to create a single visual story about 1968 and a singular color palette of 1968 in DC. Through their endless repetition of black and white photographs of the uprising that occurred after the assassination of the beautiful Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Through their endless repetition of black and white photographs of burning buildings, through their endless repetition of black and white photographs of the largely white male National Guard and their rifles and armored trucks that occupied much of the city, they have attempted to convince us that these sober images, excuse me, these somber images are the visual story of 1968. And this has been a deliberate choice that they have made while they simultaneously keep thousands of other images of 1968 locked away behind a paywall. How does the Washingtonian magazine make 1968 and Alma Thomas seem incompatible? The Washingtonian magazine was created as a monthly magazine by whites and for whites in 1965. In 1968, when white people were less than 30% of the DC population, they chose to overrepresent whites on their covers. So in 1968, every single cover except for one featured a white person. A practice, by the way, that they have largely continued. Yet in 2018, for their 1968 commemorative, commemorative issue, instead of being true to their penchant toward white people, they chose to replicate the weaponization of imagery like the Washington Post by featuring the uprising, albeit with a slight difference. The photograph was in color instead of black and white. In 2018, I launched the DC 1968 project in large part because I wanted to intervene in the public and collective memories of 1968 for Washingtonians. So every day in 2018, I posted an original story and photograph about something that happened on that day in 1968. I posted it on my website uh, that Sarah just uh, graciously uh, posted in the chat, the uh, URL dc1968project.com and also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the hashtag DC1968project. Alma Thomas has served as a kind of muse for the project. She has been central to how I understand and think about DC in 1968. Because of her insistence on beauty, on color, on abstraction, and on imagination, I have been able to see anew and think anew about the daily lives, experiences, and desires of Washingtonians during 1968, as well as before and after. I have been able to see beauty and color and to assist and to insist on exploring the fullness and complexity of 1968 in DC. I don't remember when I was first introduced to the work of Alma Thomas. It may have been in the late 1980s when my friend Sherry worked with Thurlow Tibbs at his gallery, the Evans Tibbs Collection. Sherry helped Thurlow Tibbs with research, with collecting, and also with exhibitions. I used to visit her often when she was at work. Sherry and I were also huge book nerds. As part of her work, we spent much of our time gallivanting around DC and Maryland, 
to use bookstores looking for art books and also for first edition hardcover books. I will forever be grateful to Sherry for giving me her very rare copy of Dorothy Porter's beautiful opus, Early Negro Writing, 1760 to 1837. For the DC 1968 project, because of Thomas, I re-envisioned the materials in my own collection and the collections of family members, friends, classmates, acquaintances, colleagues, and local archives. I began to see uh, our work and their work as art, as beautiful, and as evidence of a deep love of color, and as more evidence of the abundance of color and beauty in 1968. One of my fathers, Bobby Hale, was an avid photographer here in DC. He took beautiful color photographs with his Kodak camera throughout 1968. I also have a beautiful color photograph that my uncle Louis Barnett took of his partner, my Aunt Anne, me, my sisters, Veronica and Tracy, and my cousin Cynthia on their porch in August of 1968. A friend to Quina received a bright red diary as a Christmas gift from her mother that she wrote in every single day in 1968. Tequina has also served as a muse for the DC 1968 project. And in the summer of 1968, photographer Phil Portlock took a break from black and white photography of activism and revolution. And he took beautiful color photos of flowers and butterflies at the National Arboretum. And it is through the invitation to present today that I have begun not only thinking about Alma Thomas's body of work, but also about her physical body and about her moving herself and her artwork physically throughout the city in 1968. Indeed, she was busy that year as Margie's talk already has shown us. And so I'm gonna end by sharing um, how, uh, how we, there was immense com compatibility um, between 1968 and Alma Thomas by sharing some of the spaces that she moved through in 1968. I'll begin with May 1968 when she was a part of an exhibition at George Washington University titled Negro Artists in Washington. That exhibition was part of a Black Arts and Entertainment Festival weekend sponsored by the Black Student Union with Peggy Cooper as the festival chair. Many of you may know Peggy Cooper as Peggy Cooper Kafritz, who is an immense uh, art collector, immense patron of the arts, and who also was one of the founders of uh, Duke Ellington uh, School, which is, was the city's first um, art high school. In June, 1968, at the Art and Book Festival hosted by Neighbors Inc. at College High School, I believe at Alma Thomas, um, offered her work for exhibition, but not for sale. And as Margie already told us, Alma Thomas had a solo exhibition at the Franz Bader Gallery. The gallery was located near George Washington University and less than 10 blocks from the White House. There were at least 16 paintings in watercolor on exhibition. In November, 1968, she was also part of an exhibition at the Anacostia Neighborhood Museum now the Smithsonian Anacostia Museum. The exhibition was titled 16 Washington Artists. And finally, in January of 1968, 
Lloyd McNeil, a visual artist and musician extraordinaire who often exhibited with Alma Thomas, had a major multi-genre exhibition at the white-owned Washington Gallery of Modern Art. The gallery was located near 21st and P Streets Northwest, and Thomas lived near 15th and P Streets Northwest. I can't help but wonder, again, thinking about how she may have moved from her house to that space. Did she walk there? Did she take a taxi? Did she hop on a bus along P Street or did she get a ride to that exhibition? That is the beauty of Alma Thomas, pushing us to wonder and wander about and amidst the possibilities. Thank you. Wow, so such a wonderful series of talks. Uh, and I, and I thank, thank you, Melanie and Thaisa and Margie and, and Maria. Um, I think uh, this program in some ways was designed to address uh, one of the major uh, themes of the exhibition that you can't just focus uh, solely or, or you, you shouldn't focus just solely on the paintings um, and that um, it's, it's important to acknowledge um, all these various dimensions of Alma Thomas's um, life and creative practice. Um, and I, I, I almost want to, start by maybe not getting in the way and asking um, if you all have questions of each other. I'm, I'm cribbing from the previous panel that Steve Nelson uh, moderated that I thought was really brilliant. And um, so I'm curious, they were answering a question, what in your research didn't you find that, that you're really looking for? What, what, I know for me, I'll just throw out that I, I know that Alma Thomas visited Dunbarton Oaks, but I don't know anything about how she came. Your question, Maria, did she walk? Did she take a bus? Did she come with people? Did she come by herself? Did she come and paint? Did she come and smell flowers and take cuttings? I, I wish I knew more about what she did. And I don't know if others have pieces that would help us put together this, this really remarkable woman, artist. To, to kind of follow up with, with your question, um, for me, it was kind of tricky because when Jonathan and Seth approached me, I really followed directions. They said, you know, we want you to write about St. Luke's. I was like, okay, I'll stay in my lane. But then I kind of thought, well, what, what is the link between the paintings that she produces that are religious and subject matter and the church? And I could not find anything in the archive that kind of linked the two together. Like it would have been great to find some type of journal or documentation of her reflecting on the importance of the site and the stained glass windows. Right. But, but that really wasn't absent. And when I kind of completed the essay, I, I kind of had a revelation in a way that maybe that's something she kept for herself, that we don't have to know everything from the archives and maybe her relationship relationship spiritually to that site is something that was just for her. I, I was struck, Margie, by the parallels between um, the wide range of your mother's interest and, and, uh, and Alma's. Um, again, it seems as though the same question comes up. Did your, did your mother think of herself primarily as a photographer or did she, how did she no, look at well, her practice? It, 
it, later in her life, she did think of herself primarily as a photographer, but I think what she would call herself was an artist, mainly. Right. Um, and, you know, it's a wide range from performing arts to all that. But she, she was very, very skilled with drawing and painting. And, um, and even though she actually thought about pursuing painting as a, you know, career track, but um, she always wanted to make sure that her, her projects outside of raising us three kids paid for themselves at least and if not made some money. So becoming a painter was not really something that she decided was going to really be advantageous for everyone. So that's why she did uh, puppet shows for paid performances. And that's why when she was a photojournalist, she wanted to get that you know, contract with a newspaper and a magazine so she'd get paid for her work. The work that she did for artists or about artists was mostly pro bono. She um, she worked in exchange, uh, often in exchange for some an artwork from an artist, nothing major, but like a drawing or a print or something. So, you know, that that was her way of kind of contributing to helping and not taking too much, but, but feeling like she needed something. And I think being a feminist, you know, uh, it was really important for her to be taken seriously as a professional. And that means being paid for your work. So, you know, that's part of it. That gets us a little closer to, to Dr. Painter's remarks that, you know, there's always this very practical aspect, but I, 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 I think what's interesting is we all have those challenges, but it's particularly interesting uh, to see how artists negotiate that um, problem uh, and still manage to put their lives together in such remarkable ways. I, I have to say, uh, Maria, uh, your website is truly a work of art. Uh, it's, uh, it's, and I wonder if you yourself, I can't help but think of the, uh, the just the pattern of, of the, uh, of the design and, and, and wonder if you had um, some uh, direct uh, creative influence from Alma Thomas. There, there's something about, it's very beautiful and the flickering and I love the play of the black and white and the color photographs and it's uh, it's um, it's very moving and and, and uh, wonderful and and in some sense I, I of course started thinking about just a direct art artistic influence but maybe that's not not true. Um, well, thank you. That's that's very generous, Charles, and I appreciate that. I mean, I I did want it to be I did want the site to be beautiful. Um, I did I did uh, also see it as a kind of love letter to. Um, the city to Washingtonians. This is a place where I was born and raised and a, a place I feel very intimately and very viscerally. And so I did want people to come and, and feel, um, yeah, inspired, excited, angry, um, you know, by, uh, you know, by what was there. Um, and yeah, I, I think, I think I'm going to start to claim that, um, that term artist, you know, I dabble in, in arts, I dabble in crafts, um, you know, I'm a, I have been, you know, a dancer. And so, yeah, I mean, it is the commi commitment to beauty and color is something that, um, yeah, that I'm, I'm starting to, to claim more um, in terms of my identity. But yeah, definitely, I wanted to create something definitely that was that was beautiful. And, and, and that felt like a, a, a whole kind of um, 
product in a way, a whole kind of thing that also that came together as a whole, but also could be broken up into parts as well, or, or uh, you know, you get bites of it as well. So thank you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think that bigger notion of what an artist is, is something that is very powerful. And it could, kind of, uh, you know, it, it's a door that a lot of people have to walk through in, in order to, uh, I haven't walked through it. <laughs> but, but it's interesting uh, to, to see how people do that. Um, uh, I was also, Thais, um, I mean, um, Margie, um, it was so fascinating to see the collaboration, um, direct collaboration around the photographs. Um, and there again, you just feel that those are kindred spirits. They must have enjoyed that whole process of uh, what it, uh, of cooperating to bring those uh, stunning images to, to uh, fruition. Well, it's really interesting when you do look at the like the contact sheets from a day a day of of working seeing the different setups and knowing this must have been hours you know they were spending together there and uh that that whole relaxed look of alma's you know when when it when it gets caught and when she's you know engaged in the work and you know you you know she's comfortable and and that was the process of them working together which is so nice and also just the willingness to try different things, put on a different outfit, you know, sit here, sit there. You know, it's very nice, very, looked like a very creative time for the two of them. Um, let's uh, let's uh, turn to the uh, chat and I may, I'm not very good at this, but I've got, uh, let me try to negotiate some of this. Um, participant question, uh, Thomas was also a teacher. Is her work in life as it is taught about an art school's, oh my God, here we go. <laughs> yeah. It's asking about basically this other, her, her, her talents as a teacher. Um, and is that, is that something that I guess is taught about Thomas? And I, and I, and I think that is, um, let me continue here. And here, I think this has come up previously, but do we know, we know Alma Thomas mentored many younger DC area artists, of course. Um, this, this gets to the, 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 interesting, um, the interesting quote where she said she was more interested in her, her work as a teacher, perhaps, than her, her work as an artist. Uh, I don't know if you have any, Melanie, you're, you're a wonderful teacher. Uh, how, what is your, your view of that? Well, I mean, you know, I'm thinking even about um, the curriculum at Howard University, really with her being the first graduate of the Department of Art, she's kind of part and parcel. I don't, I can't imagine that a semester or a class uh, doesn't go by where her example um, isn't illuminated. And I mean, also the kind of determination, right, that she exhibits not only as an art educator um, during her time at Shaw, but even thereafter, right, creating beauty clubs, creating 
creating other alternatives while she's, you know, emerging as uh, this prominent painter. I mean, it, it really becomes an example for all of our students. And I would say, especially thinking about some of our recent MFA grads and some of our BFA grads, they have gone on to be art teachers. So that that legacy of art educators coming out of Howard um, is still very strong, again, starting off, starting with Alma Thomas. I, you know, Charles, I would also add, and, and I think it's a, a caution to all of us that we tend to think people's careers, you know, I'm a teacher over here, and then, you know, I turn around and I, I become something else. And I would argue, at least for me, teaching is a way of looking at the world. And, and I see that in Thomas's work. It's it's how she mentors. It's how, and in the same way, she's also an artist and looking at the world that way. And, and the two, sometimes you get paid to do that thing you're doing and sometimes you don't. But, you know, I, I don't think teachers, I don't know any good teachers who can turn off teaching, right? Being a teacher. Yeah. Or, or artists for that matter, right? You know, I, um, you can't sort of turn it on and off, not if it's really in your soul. And I'll just add to that as well. I think um, one of the things that, I, that I'm learning as I continue to learn about uh, Alma Thomas, that uh, I did read something recently, it was probably in the catalog in which uh, I think there was mention about her being inspired by Sam Gilliam and her wanting to create kind of larger artwork the way that, um, you know, Sam Gilliam did. So part of what I think probably made her an excellent teacher and also an excellent artist is that she saw herself as both simultaneously a, a, a teacher and a learner. So I think that's part of uh, her beauty as well. Great. Um, I'd, I'd like to bring up a, maybe a bigger issue about um, uh, how we think of Washington, D.C. Um, in terms of its cultural history and and whether there's a there's a really a bigger uh, more remar remarkable history still to be written about the the, the the city i think you know one of the fascinating things about alma thomas is uh, i think the arc of her career um speaks to how you know how central washington is not, not just because of its political uh, uh culture but also because of its its arts culture uh and 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 her career punctuates certain moments. I mean, all the way up to, of course, having the painting at the White House, uh, which is which is so dramatic, uh, kind of a incursion of Washington culture into the world of of, of politics. Um, and I wondered if if you all had the sense that um, that Washington, um, as a as a cultural center, has uh, over the course of the 20th century has has not gotten enough attention or hasn't been fully described. I think all the talks today and, and so many of the discussions surrounding this show, of course, it's one of the great things the show does is it, it begins to sketch out through Alma Thomas's life, a huge, a much, much bigger story about um, the arts in Washington. And um, um, I don't know if that sparks any thoughts on, on, uh, on your part. I think across the board, I know for me, um, delving into African-American architectural history over the last five years, I mean, so much has been written documenting um, the foundational role of African-American builders and architects all throughout the 19th century. Um, even thinking about my colleague at Howard University, uh, Dr. Hazel Edwards um, has done great work thinking about uh, the legacy of, of, of creating uh, designers and 
architects that that will shape the city that that we live in now. Um, so sometimes when you think across the areas from architecture to the visual arts, um, you get a much broader story. And then even highlighting that when we look at black churches, we're not seeing often just the the aspiration of one preacher, but you're really looking at the aspiration of a whole community, right? And a whole congregation. So when I think of things in that way, it's like, you know, you see DC as a place that is shaped by a range of Black communities from the late 18th century all the way up to this moment. And is that, that's a big history uh, kind of waiting to be brought together. Of course, very challenging, yeah. very challenging, but I I think uh, everyone gets glimpses of that. And uh, your project is interesting in that sense too, Maria, that we, you know, we look at a year like 1968, we, we might think uh, we have some type of grasp of, of uh, what was going on. Certainly it was traumatic in many, many ways, but you, your, your, uh, your website, of course, brings out a whole, raises a whole host of issues. It's very engaging. You ask people to, uh, to uh, uh, respond. And um, I think it, 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 uh, you know, you you get this sense of wow, we really haven't begun to really uh, scratch the surface of that of that history. Um, yeah, and, and that, I'll just quickly say, and that was one of the goals of the, the project is is really these were just you know these all, these kind of daily offerings, you know, photographs, you know, short stories, providing sources, uh, ask you know asking questions, asking people to contribute to share. You know what I mean? So I just kind of put what I could do out there and then invited others to correct me, you know, to to make changes um, and, and use it as a kind of foundation, you know, for other projects. And the reality is, I mean, obviously, 1968 is a magnanimous year, but you could lit I think you could do a similar kind of project probably about every single year um, in D.C. and do something kind of amazing. So it was important, but, you know, admittedly arbitrary you know, at the same time. And, and oftentimes I couldn't find stories about something that happened on that day um, in, um, you know, in 68. And so I got creative and started doing on this day 30 years ago or this, you know. So, you know, there's also some things in there that, um, you know, go beyond that. But, uh, but yeah, there's, there's still so much, you know, to be written for sure. It, it also gave, I think it also provides a kind of hint it, you know how important that question is how would you write that history how would you you know how would you kind of i think it's a kind of really interesting experiment um, i would also add to that charles i would love to see more of and and alma thomas notes this about the public realm a uh, history of the public realm and the landscape and of of and we always focus on the mall and and you know there's probably still more to be done about the mall but dc is so much more than the mall um, and to really to look at the gardens of gardens like Alma Thomas, right? And, and the role that played in just her, her front yard and the public realm and the semi-public, I, I think that also plays a really important part and is a great project for someone out there. Yeah, it's a big project. So that's why that I, I think that way of uh, creating a huge collaborative undertaking, which I, again, Maria, I think you're kind of pointing at, um, is, is intriguing. Um, well, I want to apologize to the chat because I'm just incompetent. <laughs> but I, but I, I, I hope we can maybe address some of those um, questions um, after the program. Um, but I'm being told that we're reaching the end of our time. 
So let me see here. All right. Um, we're going to close the program as Stephen did his um, by inviting our speakers and actually all the participants in the webinar to take a moment to meditate on beauty as Thomas's art inspires us to do. With Thomas's example in mind, how might we rededicate ourselves to finding beauty in the everyday? Any thoughts along, along those lines? My answer was I'm going to adopt as my mantra um, a, little, uh, a little quote that I think Jonathan found in the archive uh, from Alma. Love comes by looking. I've always loved, I've, of course, I love visual art, so. <laughs> I'll, I'll add, because I think mine sort of builds on that, which is it's about curiosity. And I think when we're curious about the world, we find beauty in the world. And I, I certainly think Alma Thomas uh, reveals an, a, a deep, deep curiosity. Yeah, you know you're in the company of someone like that because you literally see a hundred more things than you would have would have normally seen. And I always love, of course, artists are great to walk around with. <laughs> Any other thoughts? Well, I'm, I'm very impressed by all of the relationships that she had with so many people and so many students and the energy that exchange must have given her, you know, to, to continue and have purpose and that that is in itself very beautiful and just the the beauty of all of all of the faces all of the faces out there in the world i think that's one lesson yeah and I, i'd say for uh for me uh honesty um is something that i want to take um I, I think um yeah just, just, just being honest. I think honesty is beautiful, and so I hope to, you know, be able to continue to try to to be um, to be honest. I think um, extending off of the idea of looking, you know, uh, Alma again extends a very rich African American creative aesthetic legacy in DC, and I think the more stories we can uplift, the more dynamic it presents uh, Washington DC as a site. Because to think about her creative production extending a tradition from the 19th century for me was just kind of, you know, it, it shifted the narrative that I ever knew about Alma Thomas. So I hope we can continue uh, to recognize the beauty that African-Americans have been forging in Washington, DC since the late 18th century. Yeah, Alma Fest is pretty, pretty good, uh, pretty wonderful way to do some of that. Yes. Um, so, um, well, first let me extend an invitation for all of you to join us at the gallery for the Wilmerding Community Celebration of Alma Thomas in the East Building tomorrow, Saturday and Sunday. Uh, three, just to reiterate, throughout the year, other festivities will be taking, pla taking place at venues across the city, uh, including Howard, the Phillips, AU, American University, uh, and the exhibition, again, Alma Thomas, Everything is Beautiful. Wow, Seth and, uh, and Jonathan, thank you so much, um, is currently on view at the Chrysler Museum, where I did see it, and I recommend you going down there to Norfolk. It's fantastic. Uh, it's, it's on view there until October 3rd. And it can be seen at the Phillips Collection um, starting October 30th. 
uh, for, for an overview of all those celebrations, go to almathomasdc.org. Uh, and we're going to conclude by returning to the video of the conversation between the poet Elizabeth Alexander and the director and chief curator of the Studio Museum in Harlem, Thelma Golden. Thank you all, uh, everyone involved with the Wilmerding Symposium. Uh, I, I wish we had time to really uh, have you all up on the screen and give you a round of applause. But um, I'll just say, take care. She um, cared about beauty. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, you know, I think with Black artists, mm -hmm. that is sometimes seen as being outside of political, outside of duty. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think her understanding of beauty was actually outside of that, right? I mean, I think it was something profoundly um, soulful. Yes. Uh, about um, that life force that should be and must be available to all, that's around us if we will will look, uh, that is a reason for living in the day that's and right. over the long run. What, what, what do you hear when she talks about her commitment to beauty? I hear her commitment to beauty as actually a political act. Again, I think of who she was, who she was in the world, the world she lived in, and what it meant for her as an artist to say, not only am I going to acknowledge beauty in the world at an almost spiritual level, mm. right? Like her, again, this, this fantastic um, fascination with nature, this absolute obsession with space and the unknown, but then to translate that and to have beauty be at the core of the work, mm. right? I think for her was a way to offer that to her viewers. You know, I think often because she also was an educator, she really thought about the fact that her works would live in public environments mm -hmm. and the experience of them would be an experience that individuals would have. And so I think that by offering beauty, offering that experience through the experience of the work, that she was also encouraging us all to understand the power of beauty in the face of so much else that we might encounter.